Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after those who are Christ set his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I protest, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought. And stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Maybe see you. The last three weeks we've dealt with the passage in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 23 through 28, dealing with the timing of Christ's second coming and the nature of Christ's millennial reign. Actually, the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 deals with the essential nature of the resurrection. Not only that men will rise from the dead, but that Christ is risen from the dead. As I've said in, the, uh, in previous messages, the scripture affirms the central importance of the resurrection of Christ in Christian theology. Men will rise from the dead. Everybody will rise from the dead. Some will rise to everlasting salvation. Others will rise to everlasting destruction in hell forever. One cannot be a genuine Christian without believing in Christ's resurrection. And by genuine, I mean one who is truly saved. That's what I mean by a genuine Christian. Believing in the resurrection is a central tenet of the gospel. Not only do men rise from the dead, but Christ is the first fruits of those who rise from the dead. Christ is the first fruits of those who rise. Without his resurrection, there is no hope for Christians. No hope. Paul stated that if men haven't been raised from the dead, and if Christ isn't risen from the dead, he says we have believed in vain, and we're still in our sins, and we will perish in our sins. A dead Savior can't save us now, can he? 
the work of Christ, according to the Scripture, will be null and void if Jesus isn't risen from the dead. If there is no resurrection of the dead, of Christ, then there is no victory over death at all. And that means that sin's power is still over us if Jesus hasn't been risen from the dead. If Jesus isn't risen from the dead, there is no Jesus interceding for us now, is there? If he's not interceding for us, there is no Holy Spirit empowering us. There is no Holy Spirit who is bringing people to saving faith if Jesus isn't risen from the dead. And if there's no resurrection of Jesus, then there is no subduing of Christ's enemies under his feet now, is there? That means there's no dominion of Christ if Jesus isn't risen from the dead. Now, our series on the messages in verses 23 through 28 all hinge upon the resurrection of Christ, who, as the Scripture says, was declared to be the Son of God with power. And his uh, fact that he is risen with power, he is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he is exercising dominion over the nations. So the underlying theme of the whole chapter here is Christ's resurrection and the implications of that resurrection. Now with that being said, that the whole theme is Christ's resurrection, if we look at verses 29 to 27, or through verse 34, which is our text for the day, the theme, again, is the resurrection of the dead. He is, the apostle is continuing this thought in these passages, and verse 29 has been the subject of much speculation. Perhaps you have read that and you wondered, what in the world is the baptism for the dead? It says here, otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead. If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? So what in the world is the meaning of the baptism for the dead? Several views have been advanced. Commentators will speculate on what they think the meaning could be. Mormonism, I don't know if you know, has a baptism for the dead. We've had relatives who are Mormons. One called me up one day and wanted to know about our genealogy. I studied Mormonism. I knew why he was calling. The Mormon church has one of the greatest genealogical archives in the world out in Utah. But they have it for a reason. Because they have a doctrine for the baptism for the dead. Meaning that you can be baptized for someone who has passed on, and perhaps you can keep them out of the lower part, or hell, as they understand it, that they will get to the celestial kingdom, uh, or, no, the terrestrial kingdom. They won't get to the celestial kingdom, but at least you'll get them to the terrestrial kingdom. So they have... Uh, in their writings, and you can read the Book of Mormon and Doctrine of Covenants and find out about the baptism of the dead. Uh, 
Actually, that view is not uh, a new view. Uh, in the early church, there was a view uh, presented by the Gnostics, one of the leading Gnostics of the time in the early church, in which the Apostle John contended with, was Serentius. And he advanced this idea of what is, came to be known in church history as vicarious baptism. You know, vicarious means in place of another. Now, for Mormonism, one can have their relatives, as I said, vicariously baptized. In the early days of the church, uh, there came to uh, a, a view to be held by some, and it was practiced whereby a person could undergo a second baptism for a loved one who had died but had not yet been baptized. So you got baptized for them. Now, obviously those views are based on superstition. There is nothing in the scriptures outside this passage that Paul is mentioning, uh, a a theology of of a baptism for the dead. There came to exist uh, throughout the early church a view of others being baptized uh, for the dead. Now, the problem here is this. That view of a vicarious baptism in place of another is foreign to the scriptures. It has an unbiblical view of the power of baptism. Now, when we preach through Romans and through 1 Corinthians 6, we have talked about baptism. What is the nature of it? The actual water baptism doesn't save you, now does it? It brings you into a community of believers But the act itself doesn't save a person. Our confession of faith recognizes uh, that there must be, even in infant baptism, that act in and of itself doesn't save, but it pictures a time of when God may work in the hearts of his elect. It does represent union to Christ, but it needs to be in context of faith in Jesus. That either is present right then, or what you believe God will do in their heart someday. So this idea that you got to be, you want to baptize somebody for a relative that's dead, is based upon an unbiblical notion of the power of baptism. Thinking that that is so important, you're going to have to be baptized that that somehow that'll do them good. Apparently, this view had come into the, the church at Corinth to a certain degree. And um, the apostle was dealing with it. So what does this baptism of the dead mean? The best explanation is we really don't know. <laughs> because the apostle doesn't go into it and you're not going to see it again. And therefore, whatever we may speculate on it is that we may have some educated uh, uh, views of what it entails, but it really doesn't uh, go into what it is other than the fact that there were some that were being baptized for the dead. But he's going to use that to advance an argument, as we're going to see. Now, the As we said, we don't know exactly what it may mean. 
But Paul says here, and notice how he phrases it, otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? He doesn't necessarily apply what will we do, but what will they do who are baptized for the dead? Paul frequently employs a, a, an argumentation by which uh, he grants concessions to his opponents for a time only to advance an argument against them. We've already seen him do that, have we not, in this chapter. He stood upon the ground of those who said, okay, there is no resurrection of the dead. Paul says, all right, let's say there's no resurrection of the dead. What does that mean? And in verses 12 through 19, he goes into the fact of what is the implications if indeed nobody rises from the dead. If nobody rises from the dead, that means Jesus didn't rise from the dead. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you're still in your sins. So it's not unusual for Paul to stand on another person's arguments, argue their case only for the purpose of showing the falseness of that position. And so what we see here... Paul just essentially says these people who are practicing some kind of baptism for the dead, he's using it in a way against them for this reason. He says there are those in Corinth who were teaching that there is no resurrection. So if there's no resurrection, why are people being baptized for the dead? What good could it even conceivably do if there's no such thing as a resurrection. So if there is no resurrection, Christ again isn't risen. Christ isn't risen. There is no atonement for sins. There's no reconciliation to God. Now is there if he isn't risen? That means that we are in a state of final condemnation if there is no resurrection. So why are you, you who... Some in this church in Corinth were teaching that there is no resurrection. Then why are you having some people baptized for the dead? It makes no sense. What is the use of laboring to save sinners if there's no resurrection from the dead? Then our witnessing is useless. Talking to people about Jesus is useless if there's nothing beyond this life. So in verse 32 of our text... We see Paul says that his boasting, he says, I am boasting in the Corinthians. He says, uh, <clears throat> if from human motives I fought with, uh, well, back up to verse 31. I protest, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. Now, the apostle here is saying that in Christ Jesus, what boasting that I have in you, and if you notice, as we've gone through First Corinthians, Paul has made a comment that he sees them as his children in the faith, that he had a certain uh, boasting that he was their spiritual father. He brought them the gospel. They believed. He wasn't the only one. Apollos uh, was there uh, because you have that split in the church between those who looked upon Paul as their spiritual father, Apollos and Peter. But he says, I did bring you the gospel. I do boast in you. But he says, I die daily. What, what value would be my boasting in you if there is no resurrection from the dead? Then what I'm going through 
is just vain, what I have to put up with. Paul's life was one of constant, as it were, dying. He sacrificed greatly on behalf of the churches of God. Death was his constant companion in the sense, at any moment, he could be killed for the faith. You only have to read through the book of Acts, do you not, to see wherever he went, there was somebody upset with him. And not only when he leave one city, a bunch of the people from that previous city would come over to the other city and cause trouble. So it was just trouble. One after the other, mainly the apostate Jews were the, the most significant group that caused him trouble. But he, he was also always in danger. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 11 and look at verses 23 through 30. And you'll see what the apostle went through. Not only him, but the other people of the apostolic team. He says in verse 23, Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews. Thirty-nine lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren, I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without being weak, who is led into sin without my intense concern. If I have to boast, I will boast in what pertains to my weakness. You get the point that Paul says it was dangerous what I was doing. So dangerous, he says in our text, if you turn back to 1 Corinthians 15, it says in 1 Corinthians 15 in our text in verse 32, he says, If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me if the dead are not raised? Let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, there's some conjecture there. Did, did Paul fight with wild beasts in Ephesus? Well, it can be taken uh, either two ways. Uh, he could have actually fought with um, wild beasts there. Uh, it doesn't, and you look at Acts chapter 19 of his journeys and his dealings in Ephesus, he doesn't mention fighting beasts in Ephesus. Uh, in what I read to you in St. Corinthians 11, he doesn't mention fighting with uh, wild beasts in Ephesus. Does that mean then he actually didn't fight them? Well, not necessarily. Uh, remember uh, in the book of John, of all the deeds of Jesus, remember what John says? He's just given us a glimpse of what Jesus did. He says, 
metaphorically speaking, he says, if I were to tell you everything, I could fill volumes of books. You see, I've just told you some. So it may be that he fought uh, <coughs> with actual wild beasts. Now, that was a custom in that day, uh, particularly something if you weren't a Roman citizen, you could be subject to. Now, if you're a Roman citizen, you were not to be uh, thrown into that kind of activity. But here's what happened. Not only did they throw people the wild beasts, but for entertainment, they put you into an arena, they gave you a weapon, and then they turned loose. It could be wild dogs, wolves, it could be uh, lions. You didn't know what your face. And, it's, it was, and so it provided entertainment. And it was fighting for your life, literally. And Paul says, well, <clears throat> I was fighting a wild beast in Ephesus. Well, he may have. When uh, Whitfield was preaching in the Moorfields in London, one of the uh, recreation, now the Moorfields, it was a park area, but it was not the park that you want to take your ch- children to, really. Because there are all kinds of stuff going on. Uh, there was bear baiting was going on. What they did, that was, a, that was an entertainment where they tied a bear to a pole, and then they unleashed dogs, and they would just see, you know, you know, who's going to win, the dogs or the bear? And as the dogs would get maimed or killed, they just dragged the dogs off. And it says sometimes for entertainment, they did like the bear loose to chase people. Now, and then they had cudgel fighting where they gave you the type of uh, fighting, a boxing with clubs. Now, get the picture. This was going on, and there's no indication some of that could have been going on at the same time Whitfield has put up a pulpit and preaching to thousands of people. So you got him preaching to thousands of people. Over here, the other part, you got bear baiting going on and cudgel fighting going on. And sometimes it was, uh, you didn't know what would happen. Those when uh, Whitfield was successful uh, preaching, others decided, well, we're just going to go and, and preach like him. And uh, it says the crowd came upon them, uh, ran them out, tore up the, the the foundation they were on, and ran them out of the park. Another alternative with Paul, whether he fought wild beasts in Ephesus, sometimes that phrase, fighting wild beasts, can be uh, a reference. It could be figurative. It wasn't unusual for the ancients to use that term to uh, refer to dealing with enraged people. So now in Ephesus, what went on in Ephesus if it wasn't actual fighting with wild beasts, we do know that when they preached the gospel, there were a lot of people converted to Christ. Now, Ephesus was a major sinner, and the goddess Diana was that which everybody worshipped. And you had a lot of people that were making a bunch of money selling silver statues of Diana. And when people were being converted, guess what? They were destroying their silver. They weren't buying the silver statues of Diana. And guess what happened? The, the silversmiths began to complain to the civil authorities, hey, we're losing money. You going to do something about these guys? I mean, it's destroying the Ephesus economy. And we're told in Ephesians 19 that a riot arose against Paul because of the silversmiths raising a stink of what was going on. And 
It was so bad that Paul basically had to leave, and he went to Macedonia. So, this is what life uh, was like. And whether it's fighting real beasts or having to contend with riotous mobs, life was dangerous for the apostle. He says, tell me, what possible human motive would I have to, to put up with that kind of thing if I didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead? Because I could die at any moment. It simply brings out <clears throat> what the apostle already said in verse 19. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, where it says here, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Now that's what he's basically getting at when he speaks here. What possible human motive would I have to put up with this if Jesus isn't risen from the dead? And if Jesus really isn't risen from the dead, then I, above all the people, ought to be most pitied. Because I face dangers everywhere I go, and I face the, the distinct possibility I could be killed at any moment. Is it worth it? The point here is, so is it worth it? It's only worth it if Jesus is raised from the dead. If there is glory in heaven, if there is a reward for faithful service, then it's worth it. But if there is no heaven, if there is no resurrection, is it worth it? I don't think so. To put up with all of that, because he says, what would it profit me if the dead are not raised? And then he just draws from a, a common quote, a poet from the time, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If there's no resurrection, then by all means, let's just live it up. Because that's all that you have. You only go through life once, so you might as well get the most out of it. By all means, don't hold to some ideology that can have you killed. It's not worth it. If this is all that you have in this life. It is the hope of a resurrected life that sustained Christians through intense persecution throughout church history. That's what sustained them. I want to read to you a couple instances from Fox's Book of Martyrs, uh, some of the persecutions that were going on. One of the first occurred in 108 A.D. One of the well-known uh, bishops, Christians of the time, influential, was Ignatius. And under the emperor Trajan, the renowned Ignatius would be martyred. Now, when they captured Ignatius, and he's facing his imminent death, here's what he said. Now, I'm going to read to you what Ignatius said at, just on the eve of being martyred for the faith. He says, Now I begin to be a disciple. I care for nothing of visible or invisible things, so that I may win Christ, let fire and the cross, let the companies of wild beasts, let breaking of bones and tearing of limbs, 
Let the grinding of the whole body and all the malice of the devil come upon me. Be it so. Only may I win Christ Jesus. And even when he was sentenced to be thrown to the beasts, such as the burning desire that he had to suffer, that he spoke, what time he heard the lions roaring, saying, quote, I am the wheat of Christ. I am going to be ground with the teeth of wild beasts, that I may be found, that I may find pure bread. And then they unleashed the beasts upon him. Such was the martyrdom of Ignatius. There was another significant period of persecution in the early church um, in A.D. 162. This goes to show you don't believe all that you see or hear in Hollywood. If you ever saw the movie Gladiators, you have the story of Maximus the General under a true uh, emperor of the time, Marcus Aurelius. Now, if you saw the movie, they sort of make Marcus Aurelius somewhat of a hero in this, that he was going to restore Rome to the Republic, take it away from the tyrants. But here's the real Marcus Aurelius. He was a great persecutor of the church. One of the most severe persecutors of the church. It is said of him that he was more a man of nature, more stern and severe. Although in the study of philosophy, I'm reading from Fox's Book of Martyrs. Although in study of philosophy and in civil government no less commendable, yet toward the Christians he was sharp and fierce. By whom was moved the fourth persecution of the church. During that time, under Marcus Aurelius, Polycarp was the uh, bishop of Smyrna. Now, Smyrna was one of the churches, if you read it in Revelation. Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. And here's the account of the martyrdom of Polycarp. It says, hearing that persons were seeking for him, he escaped but was discovered by a child. After feasting uh, the guards who apprehended him, he desired an hour in prayer, which being allowed, he prayed with such fervency that his guards repented that they had been the instrument to take him. He was, however, carried before the proconsul, condemned and burnt in the marketplace. But before they burned him, they said, Swear, and I will release thee. Reproach Christ, and we will release thee. Polycarp answered, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? At the stake to which he was only tied, but not nailed as usual, as he assured them he should stand immovable, the flames on their kindling the faggots encircled his body like an arch without touching him, and the executioner, on seeing this, was ordered to pierce him with a sword, which was so great a quantity of blood that flowed out to extinguish the fire. But his body, at the instigation of the enemies of the gospel, especially the Jews, was ordered to be consumed in the pile, and the request of his friends who wished to give it a Christian burial, was rejected. They nevertheless collected his bones, as much of his remains as possible, and caused them to be decently interred. Such was the martyrdom 
a polycarp. No man covered <clears throat> under Rome were the catacombs. You've heard of the catacombs of Rome. And when they would uh, discover some of those catacombs, they discovered uh, skeletons and the, the remains, if you were forensic scientists, uh, what it revealed that there were, they found bodies severed, heads severed from the bodies, ribs, shoulder blades broken, bones often calcined from fire, it says. But despite the awful persecution, you would find they have found inscriptions on the walls of the catacombs from some Christians. And this tells the whole story. For example, one inscription says, Here lies Marcia, put to rest in a dream of peace. Another, Lawrence to his sweetest son, born away of angels. Then another, victorious in peace and in Christ. And then another, being called away, he went in peace. Now this is the story of those who were persecuted, tortured, to death. Now with those epitaphs, that I just read to you, here are some other epitaphs they have found of those who are the pagans. And here's what it says. Quote, live for the present hour since we are sure of nothing else. That was an epitaph of a pagan. Now, does that sound familiar? What Paul says here, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So some understood that. If there is no resurrection, if there's no hope afterwards, then you might as well just live it up. That's all that you have. You live for the present hour. Now you see the difference between those who die in Christ and those who die in unbelief? You have those believing that I'm dying and I will have a victory. I will have peace. I will be with Jesus. And the others are, oh well, I died. It's it. It's a, a, a statement to others. Just live it up because that's all you have. Brethren, if, if this life is all that we have, that'd be depressing, wouldn't it? It would be depressing. Now, we go through a lot of things that distresses us, don't we? And I would dare guess that some of you, if not all of you, have said, you know, I'd just rather go and be with the Lord than have to put up with what I have to put up with. And we're not being tortured. We're not having to risk our physical lives, and we, we think it's bad enough. So what gets the Christians through it, even great times of trial, but a firm belief that there is a life after death. Jesus is risen from the dead. And because he's raised from the dead, I will rise from the dead. And therefore, there's hope. There is hope. But Paul says, look, if there is no resurrection, might as well let us eat, drink, and tomorrow we die. And then he says, Look at verse 33. You perhaps have seen this. And I'm just going to give you that. I hope you understand now the context for this verse that we often pull out and apply to almost anything, which is not 
It's true, but I want you to understand the context. Do not be deceived, verse 33, bad company corrupts good morals. Now, yeah, you probably haven't been a godly parent. You haven't told your children, but listen, bad company corrupts good morals. You better watch who you run around with. That's a true statement. you got to watch who you associate with. But in the context here, what is Paul talking about? What bad company is he referring to? I'm going to tell you what the bad company is. The bad company are those who say there's no resurrection, who were in court, who believe they have knowledge, and were saying there's no resurrection. He says, that's the bad company you need to avoid. And it will corrupt you if you associate with those that have this view. In his commentary on this passage, R.C.H. Linsky makes some very astute observations. He says, and I'm quoting from Linsky because it's, it's so good, he says, Paul intends to say that association with deceivers who are full of skeptical ideas is bound to react hurtfully on the good ways of the lives of Christians. He who rejects the resurrection cannot live and act like one who truly believes his divine reality. He goes on to say, We are often told that errorists are just as good morally as those who believe and confess God's truth. Perhaps even better. But Paul does not agree, for this is contrary to nature. Now listen carefully to what he says. Doctrine is never an indifferent thing, even though it may be decried as dogma. It always works itself out in life. Doctrine may be held merely by the intellect, but is decidedly abnormal and thus quite exceptional. The rule is more important than the exception, meaning doctrines will always work their way out into practical ways that you live. He says that's the norm. He goes on to say, Let us sober up in the right way and never condone or excuse erroneous teaching by telling ourselves that it has little or no effect on right living. Nor let us cling to the fallacy that only aberrations as great as a denial of the resurrection produce moral decline. For every falsehood works evil according to its falsity, and often a little leaven leavens an entire lump of all proportion to its seemingly littleness. So what, what Linsky is saying here, he's commenting on this verse, verse 34, where he says, Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. He says, stop continually sinning. The, the, the Greek says, they were constantly sinning. He says, stop constantly sinning. Be sober-minded. Actually, the Greek says, wake up, is what it says. Wake up and know what's happening. He says, and stop sinning. Stop listening to those who think they have knowledge, but don't. Namely, those who don't believe there's a resurrection. 
I remember when I was in seminary, Greg Bonson, who I've told you about, Greg Bonson uh, wrote a little paper. That was one of the most profound things that that he ever wrote and influenced me greatly. And and I never forgot the one little phrase. He said, doctrine leads into godliness, and godliness leads into good doctrine. You have both. He says, if you think there's no application or no impact in real living of your doctrines, then you're greatly mistaken. And that's what Paul was saying. Ideas have consequences in the way you live. False doctrine is a view of truth that impacts behavior. And and, and here's the great example. If you have a false doctrine... Namely, men don't rise from the dead. What's, how is it going to lit, work itself out in life? Just like that epitaph that I just quoted to you, from you for you. It says, this life is all that we have. That's how it's going to work out. You see, there are some who are consistent with their ideas. And then uh, apply them. Ideas have great consequences. If you think Darwinism is any minor view, it's just uh, an intellectual view of, uh, of creation or denial of creation, then you're greatly mistaken. Because you only have to look as far as the Third Reich and Adolf Hitler, who was a Darwinist, who was going to manipulate and create his super race. So, therefore, he eliminated anybody that was undesirable. He even eliminated World War I German veterans who were amputees, saying, they're not any good for society, so let's get rid of them. He was carrying out, on a cultural basis, the impact of an idea. And he took it to its logical conclusion. I've always maintained social Darwinism believes in the survival of the fittest, and therefore whatever advances the cause for your survival, if it's killing your neighbor, by all means, kill your neighbor. Because what matters is that you survive, and especially if you have a higher intellect, you got 135 IQ, and the person that's only got 92, well, they ought to be eliminated because they're not as smart as you. So if you can get an advantage over them, then do it. I mean, that's, that's Darwinism taking its just logical impact. Ideas have consequences. And Paul says the Epicurean philosophy, by the way, remember the Epicureans are the ones who popularize the notion, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. They didn't believe in a life after death. And that's why when Paul came to Athens, along with the Stoic philosophers, they were mocking Paul. Because what was Paul preaching in Athens? Jesus, risen from the dead. They said, who is this, quote, pseudo-philosopher? Remember, they called him a pseudo-philosopher. Another term for a scrap philosopher. Not even... Dignified enough to really discuss. 
Now they, the Epicurean philosophers, thought they were brilliant. Paul says there are some who think uh, they are have knowledge, but they have no knowledge whatsoever. They think they have knowledge, but they don't. Because they don't have the fear of God. And so when we if we have this idea that we can separate doctrines from applications, then we are being naive. Ideas have consequences. One of the uh, great doctrines of Scripture is the doctrine of God's sovereignty, is it not? And some mistakenly think it's only, it's this intellectual thing that Calvinists like to talk about. But, brother, it's the one of the most <laughs> important, life-changing, comforting doctrines I know. Now, to be comforted, comforted is practical, I hope you see. Often people living in fear, they will say they believe in the sovereignty of God, but by the fact they live in fear and don't have the faith, they are not following through on what the sovereignty of God is designed to produce. See, that great doctrine is designed specifically to comfort us. It's designed specifically to give us faith in a God who promises great things but because he's in control of all things. See, it makes a difference in life if I believe that God is in control of all things. Or is there something that God is not in control of? Is there, is there some, uh, is, is God in control of the human will? You know, some would say, well, God has left the human will so free that God is not in control of it. Really? If that's the case, then life would be frightening. Because something could happen outside the control of God, and that would be frightening. But you see, the fact that nothing can happen outside the control of God, what does the Bible say? All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. All things work together for good. Therefore, the practice of that great doctrine is have faith, not fear. And so that's why Paul says in our text here, wake up, wake up and stop sinning. He says those who are telling you they have, that there is no resurrection of the dead, they're wrong. Remember what Jesus said to the Sadducees, who that, that sect in Israel that did not believe in a resurrection of the dead? What was Jesus' response to them? It was very simple. He says, you do err because you do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God. That's why you err. You ought to know better. You ought to know better. The Scripture affirms it. The skeptics may think they are clear-headed. They may think they know truth. They may ridicule others and you. And they may say, you foolish, foolish Christian. You really believe all this Christian stuff? Well, let me end with this. One of the, uh, uh, in Scotland, 
there was, as you know, a great persecution that England did. The, the king of England waged against the Covenanters, which were primarily Presbyterians in Scotland. And uh, in the uh, 1680s, under Charles II, Charles I had persecuted people, but Charles II, when he came to the throne after Cromwell, was a great persecutor of the, of the Covenanters, and they were called the Killing Fields of Scotland. Hundreds of thousands of Christians were murdered by <clears throat> the edict of the King of England. Because of the way they worshipped. Because they wouldn't acknowledge Charles as the head of the church, they were put to death. Now, one of the, uh, one of the men that would carry out these decrees was a churchman for the Church of England. And he actually was excommunicated by the Scottish uh, church for his all sorts of things, to which he said, I could care less what these Presbyterians did and excommunicated me. But one day, he became deathly ill, and one of the men that would be hanged uh, by the king for his faith before he was hanged, came by and talked with this churchman who had been excommunicated. And the preacher <clears throat> talked to him about Jesus. And actually the churchman says, you know, this is what he confided in the man. He says, when you men excommunicated me, he says, I didn't think there was nothing to it. He says, it was a lot of fun to live with these people in England, but he says, it's no fun to die with them. And then he said, and now I'm going to have to die without Christ and face an eternity in hell. And then turned and died. Oh, it's great living with these guys, but it's no fun to die with them. And as he was on his deathbed, even though someone was preached the gospel to him, he would not heed and would perish into Eternity. Brethren, and then the one who preached to them would be hanged, but before uh, they killed them, oftentimes they let preachers say a few words. Don't ever let a preacher preach before he's going to be hanged. <laughs> one of the funniest indications, one guy, uh, he was preaching, they let him go on for a while, and you would think, why would they want to do that? Because it could influence the crowd. So he preached, he put the hood over him, and he goes, whoa, 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 wait, I'm not finished, I'll preach another few minutes, and all right, I'm through. <laughs> and then they put it on and hung him. But uh, it makes a difference. It only makes a difference if Jesus has risen from the dead. And that's Paul's point. It makes all the difference. That's right.